From Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Good morning. Well, I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We'll be looking at 23 verses this morning. As we turn to that place in our Bibles, uh, we see that this is particularly a difficult passage. This is a really difficult passage to interpret well. It's a difficult passage to even know what Jesus is trying to say and teach us. But it's something that sometimes uh, can be overly contentious as we talk about how is the world going to end. Jesus is coming in this uh, teaching throughout the rest of Mark 13, and he is teaching on that. He gets asked, how will we know when these things are accomplished? Talking about the end of the age or, or what will be happening. So all Christians can agree on this, that one day Jesus will return. Jesus is going to return bodily, and he is going to resurrect all of those who have put their faith and trust in him. And those people will enjoy eternity forever with God, and he'll usher in a new kingdom. All Christians believe that. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a rude way or cross way, but that, that is what Christians believe and have always believed. It's just a part of what that means and what that looks like. Now, there are subcategories under that that are myriad. I mean, they're just, they're all over the place. It's a smorgasbord of what Christians who love God, love Jesus, love the Bible, love the authority of the Bible, believe. And it's all over the place. And today, I'm not really even taking a particular stance or stand because I don't know. (laughs) In a lot of ways, I'm still struggling with these things. So what I encourage all of us to have is humility. A tremendous amount of humility when it comes to passages of the Bible that are hard to understand. To say that we can exist with one another in a church and disagree on how this is all going down. Kendall and I usually disagree on these things and we go back and forth and we love each other. And I sought him out and said, hey, help me plant this church. Because these are the kinds of things that can definitely be disagreed upon because they are confusing and they are difficult to understand. And I want to caution this, is actually if we get too caught up in the secondary things, We miss the whole point that Jesus is trying to make. All throughout this passage, Jesus is saying really familiar language in verse 5 and 9. At the very end in verse 23, he is saying something to the effect of, see that nobody leads you astray. Be on guard. Remain faithful. Endure to the end. He says these things several times throughout the passage. And the trick of the enemy is to get us thinking about all the things that we don't know. And in next week's sermon, we'll even talk about how Jesus says he doesn't know. And yet we come with a ton of just brash confidence as if we can figure it out. When Jesus says, I don't know this, only the Father knows this. But he tells us really explicitly what we are to know. Be on guard. 
Don't be led astray. Remain faithful and endure to the end. That's the main point of what Jesus is teaching his disciples. So that's going to be the main point of today's sermon. Our main point is this, be on guard. Know that there are deceptive things out there trying to lead you away from Christ. But Jesus has given you all you need so that you might remain faithful to him until the end. And that's what we want to see in today's passage. And as we do that, what we want to see is he brings up these things that are maybe a little bit ambiguous, who's just a way to say they're not very obvious. They're kind of vague. They're hard to get your hand around. And I want to ask the question, what does that breed or bring about within you? What does these struggles and these difficulties that Jesus walks through bring about within us right now, today? And ultimately, it's going to lead to how we endure to the end, how we stay on guard. Because I want us to see that adversity breeds victory, ambiguity breeds dependence, and finally, affliction breeds discernment. And that's what we're going to walk through this passage a little bit at a time. And that's what we want to see is these things breed certain things within us. And that's really the point of the passage. And so we're just going to take this one big chunk at a time as we walk through. So I want to read the first four verses now. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And it says this about Jesus. He came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here upon, or excuse me, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? What we want to see in these first four verses is, those first two verses, they're coming out of the temple, and they're marveling at the large stones. Uh, the, the temple of Jerusalem really is, it's, it's a feat of engineering. There are these huge, massive stones that weigh like a million pounds, and somehow they've gotten up before heavy machinery into this place. And the disciples are doing what, what people still do. People still travel to Israel just to see these things, to see where the Temple Mount was, because it really is amazing. And they come out, and these disciples are looking at Jesus and say, this is amazing, Jesus. Look at these stones. How did they get them here? Aren't they so beautiful? And Jesus looks at them and says, do you see these great things, these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, what we know in the immediate future, so this is happening around 30-ish A.D., between 30 A.D., 33 A.D., depending on how that all gets calculated, this event is happening. And in 70 A.D., what we know is Rome comes in and they ransack the place. Literally, the entirety of the temple is destroyed, and this thing seems to happen. So roughly 40 years later, the temple just gets totally, completely destroyed, and it's still not rebuilt. I mean, we can know when you look over there, it is still a war land between Palestine and Israel and all that kind of stuff is still happening. And that's where we're at. And so we know that there's some immediate fulfillment happening to what Jesus is saying. But then the questions that the disciples are asking there in verses uh, 4, as, as it comes to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, I think it's so cool that these four brothers just could like hang out with Jesus. Just a little aside. Like, wouldn't it be cool just hanging out with you, your brother, and Jesus? And you're just like, hey, like, when's the end of the world going to happen? You get to ask that question. They ask, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? 
So they ask these two questions. When will these things be? And I think he's, they're talking about the destruction of the temple. When's that going to happen? But then they ask another question where I think they're getting more than what they really bargained for. And they say, when will all of these things be complete? When will all of these things be accomplished? And then we have the rest of today's passage where I think Jesus answers with a little bit telling them about 70 AD, but also he's pointing to something newer and better coming when everything gets accomplished The new age when Jesus will return, his second coming. I think he's hinting towards both of those things. And as he does that, he's he's doing something that I've used in sermons before. We talked about already, not yet. There's already a partial fulfillment of these things, and there's a not yet part of it as well. And I say that because I believe Jesus is following a pattern of the Old Testament. He's following a pattern that we see Old Testament prophets do all the time. I read this passage last week, so I'm going to read it again, but I want to point out the pattern to you. It's in 2 Samuel 12 through 17. This is really easy to see the pattern of already, not yet, happening in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17. It says, when your days are fulfilled, so this is Nathan the prophet speaking to David. David wants to build a temple. Nathan says, you can't build a temple. You killed too many people. But then he makes him this promise. When your days are fulfilled, talking to David, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now there's already some already, not yet, happening right there. Because what happens in Israel is Solomon becomes king after David, and Solomon builds the temple that he's talking about. But Solomon's kingdom isn't established forever. That's, there's a whole exile period in Israel where the Babylonians come in, they take over, and they take the people of Israel away, and they set up their own rulers, and the, and the kings of Israel are not ruling the way that they're supposed to be. So there's this already, not yet kind of thing happening. And we know that there's a better king coming. As Christians, we know who is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. Well, it's Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is being fulfilled, and it is going to be established forever. Nothing will ever take us away into exile when Jesus comes and establishes a kingdom forever and always. But in verse 14, to see this a little more, he said, I will be a father, uh, I will be to him a father, and she, he shall be to me a son, which is great language for Jesus. But then something happens that we know it can't be Jesus. When he commits iniquity, can't be Jesus, Jesus never sinned, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now Solomon did that. Solomon took wives he was not supposed to take. Solomon followed after false gods. And because of that, he ushered in a time of discipline and the Lord and other Israelite kings did the same kind of thing and God eventually takes them into exile. So that part can't be Jesus because Jesus doesn't sin. But verse 15 says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these worlds and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What we talked about last week when he quoted from that psalm, Psalm 110. He's talked about how can David say it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. They'll sit underneath your feet, as the ESV would say. We talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of that true king that was being promised. But what we can't miss and we can't deny is that Solomon does fulfill some of this prophecy in the immediate future. He does build the temple. 
and he does sin, and God does discipline him and other kings. And that's what I want to say is happening with this whole destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I believe that some of what Jesus is saying here is being fulfilled in an immediate future, but it's also still yet to be fulfilled when Jesus ushers in a new kingdom at his second coming. That a new and better thing awaits us. That what we're experiencing now is not the eternal state that we'll have of one day. That one day a perfect kingdom will come And that's what Jesus is bringing in. And that's the kind of lens that I think we need to bring into this text. This partial fulfillment, this already not yet, that is happening. Because we see these things happening all throughout the Old Testament. And we see them happening here. And so that brings us to verses 5 to 13 as the kinds of things that Jesus begins to predict. Things that I think we're going to see fulfilled partially in the immediate future. You can read through these things and we can think through. We know this happens if we ever read the book of Acts, right? So verse 5, and as we do that, I want us to see a pattern even there. Jesus begins this kept pattern where he gives this command that basically is endure, don't be led astray, or be on guard. It's kind of the same command. He then prevents, uh, presents some adversity that they're going to experience, but then he's got these little bits of optimism scattered in there, and I'll point them out as I read. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. That's the command that I was talking about. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Right? So there's some adversity. Wars, rumors of wars. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, some more adversity, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains, optimism. I'll come back to that because I know some of you ladies are not sold that that's optimistic. But there will be birth pains. The command again, be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Some adversity. But then here's some optimism again. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Some optimism, a promise. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Lots of adversity. And finally, last little bit of optimism. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what is Jesus saying here? So he's giving these promises, these non-signs, right? He tells us these things will happen and they're actually not the sign of the end. They're these non-signs that he starts to give them. And as he walks through them, what I'm trying to say is we know these get partially fulfilled in the pretty immediate future. When we walk through and he says, there will be other people who say, I am he. We know in the book of Acts, they talk about uh, a man from Egypt who came and claimed to be the Christ. And they say, let this thing kind of, you know, smolder out. If he's fake and he's not the real Christ, it'll, do, it'll just smolder out like that one guy. Remember that one crazy guy from Egypt who told everybody he was the Messiah? That will happen. That kind of thing is happening. We know that the emperors of, of Rome would come in and they would claim to make themselves out to be like a god. They would want to have their statues worshipped, and these things would happen. We would also see, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
It was Rome, for crying out loud. There was war happening all the time. That's basically how they built their whole empire. And eventually, like I said, there's a big war that happens in Jerusalem. And Rome comes in, and they make war against the Jews, and they take over, and they destroy the temple. And it does happen in the immediate future. But he says, this must take place, but it's not the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and famines... But these are about the beginning of birth, birth pains. And we even see these, these wars that are happening. And what I want to say is, yes, that was happening at the time. But that happens now today. There are wars and rumors of wars all around us right now. But these things must happen, is what we're told in the Bible. Later, he's going to say that the gospel might be proclaimed to all the nations in verse 10. You know, right now, one of the interesting things that's happening with the war in Ukraine is Ukrainian Christians. Ukraine was actually more Christianized than the, the neighboring states around it. And so places like Poland, where Christianity is, is dying rapidly, have now had this huge influx of Russian-speaking Christians who are Ukrainian being poured into Poland. I was talking to a guy who works with a missions organization. He said that's one of our challenges right now is we can't decide if we should just plant Ukrainian churches in Poland because we have so many believers coming over or if we should find ways to utilize the fact that some Polish people also speak Russian and find ways that we can reach these Polish non-Christians who speak Russian. We often only don't see the whole big picture, but God does. We wonder, why would God allow this evil dictator to come in and just roll through the Ukraine? Because these things must happen so that the gospel might be preached throughout all the earth. And we see as, as this hard thing that's happening, like a war, God uses to accomplish this big mission. The big mission of seeing the whole world hear about Jesus. We don't see these things with earthquakes and famine happen. They cause people to move and spread throughout the world in ways that we don't see. And what we see is a lot of times the gospel goes with these people into places that they would not typically go. Or it brings people who don't know Jesus into places that do. And we see converts come because they've had to leave their homeland and they're being brought into a place where the gospel can be freely preached. These are things that we can't always see, but God does see. That's why I think they're like birth pains. Now, I know hearing things like birth, birth pains and saying, man, that's optimistic, isn't a great sell to anybody who's had a baby recently. I can remember when Brittany started going into labor with Simon. It's the first time we had kind of experienced that as, as a family because of the whole adoption thing. And I can remember watching her just be in pain as those contractions would come and those birth pains would come. And we're timing them out, right? Because, oh, it's, it's, it's like a five, one, one, or some kind of rule they give us. I've already forgotten it. And we're like, wanting to do the rule, wanting to do the rule. And, and Brittany has now been going through this for like eight hours. We're still at home. We're like, I don't know what happens. And all I know is when they happen, she starts shaking right? And she's on her knees on our couch. And I'm like, I don't know what the rule is, but I think we should go to the hospital, right? And I finally talk her into letting me take us to the hospital. And when that happens, you know what's happening is in the other part of this scenario, there's mom who's experiencing the birth pains, but somewhere out there, someone has gotten some text messages and it's grandma. And grandma has gotten text messages. Brittany is going into labor. This future expecting grandma. You know what grandma's thinking? She is not thinking about contractions. She is not thinking about the pain. You know what she's thinking about? Ooh, a baby's coming. A baby is coming. 
Something better than these birth pains is right around the bend. And they're excited. And they're coming to our house. And we're going to the hospital. My parents are driving. They just like leave. They're driving from Illinois. They're excited. Brittany's parents are excited. They're at our house. They're putting together bassinets. They're, you know, doing this stuff. My dad's doing artwork on the chalkboard that we have. Why? Because they're so excited that a baby is coming. But we know that these things must take place for the baby to get here. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. And he's using this language of birth pains. And he's saying, listen, these things must take place. So when they're brought before synagogues in the book of Acts, Paul is beaten by Jewish leaders all the time in synagogues and left for dead so that he might proclaim and preach the gospel. We would say, fulfillment. Fulfillment of what Jesus is saying. When we read about the book of Acts and Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and they testify and they say, we, you can do whatever you see is right, but we must speak what God has told us. We will not stop preaching Christ. And they beat them with rods and they go away rejoicing, being counted worthy to suffer. Why? It's because Peter and John are sitting here being told this must happen so the gospel can be proclaimed all over the world. These are the birth pains, and they do it rejoicing. That we see that these things are happening in their immediate future, in their immediate context. Paul is brought before governors and kings. He's brought before Felix the governor, Agrippa the king. It's not figurative language that Jesus is using. It's literal language. What we have to see is right now today, Christians all over the world are experiencing persecution at the hands of religious authorities like synagogues because they're converting out of their religion. They're converting out of things like Islam and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. And their imams and the religious structure around them are persecuting them and bringing them before them. And while it might not be a synagogue, they're being cast out of their own culture and what it looks like to belong where they are. And they're doing it for the name of Jesus. We see all over the world Christians, like Christians in China just a few years ago, being brought before governing authorities, pastors disappearing, and we still don't know where they are. Because these things were fulfilled then in the immediate future, and they continue to be fulfilled now. Being hated by your friends or your family, receiving these things are a part of what it means to be a Christian. Do we love Jesus enough to say when we're experiencing the birth pains, something better is coming? In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, a governor, brought before Herod, a king, rejected by his own family, rejected by the religious leaders in the synagogue, delivered over by the Jews to be crucified for sin, and then his followers follow in his footsteps all throughout the book of Acts, and they continue to do that today. And so Peter tells us, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. What's strange is not being persecuted. That's what's strange when we look at the entirety of the kingdom of God. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about rejoicing. Why? Because new and better is coming. When Peter writes this to the people in First Peter, they are under persecution. They're losing their jobs before their faith. When, they, when people find out that they're Christians, they're ostracizing them, making it very difficult for them to do things like earn money, participate in normal parts of their life, shop, those kind of things. And Peter is saying, this is normal for Christians. It's not strange, but you get to rejoice in your suffering. Why? Because something better is coming. These are just birth pains. Adversity breeds victory in the life of the Christian. And that's good news for you because nobody walked in here this morning experiencing zero adversity this week. Nobody walked in here this morning. Maybe it's not as intense as being brought before a governor, but nobody comes in here with no adversity. Everyone came in here with difficulty. But Jesus is saying, you don't need to be led astray. You don't need to doubt and worry and fear. And these fiery trials come among you. Why? Because he is so good. He is promising to bring about victory in your life and a greater victory in the beginning. As Jesus answers that question about that sign or non-signs, if you will, his answer is massively ambiguous. And it gets even more ambiguous in the next set of verses here, verses 14 through 18. But what you, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who were pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. It's a stark warning but it is ambiguous. We talk about the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. After a week of studying and studying and studying and studying, I still have, I don't know. I don't know what the abomination of desolation is. It's really, really confusing. I'll give you some options. Some would say that this is language coming from the book of Daniel. And, and so for in Matthew 24, he talks about according to the, the language that Daniel uses, and he talks about standing in the place where he ought not be. In, in Matthew, he uses the language standing in the most holy place. He's talking about the temple, that somebody is eventually going to stand in, in the temple, and that is going to be this abomination of desolation, or that causes desolation. Others would say that it's the Roman armies, because in Luke twenty one twenty, it talks about when the, the armies surround the city of Jerusalem, know that the desolation is at hand. And then again, like I said, in AD 70, we know armies surround Jerusalem, and the desolation comes, and they destroy the temple. And others would even point to the fact that it may actually be the uh, referring to the standards that Roman soldiers would hold, because they would have these eagles on them, and they were almost worshipped-like. And so those standards coming in to zealous Jews would say, like, it's like a false god entering into the temple. And so that's one explanation as well. Others would say, well, in the book of Daniel, if we do some math and things that are really confusing, it's Antiochus IV in 167 B.C. That he comes and he actually enters into the Holy of Holies. A Gentile enters into a place that would totally desecrate that holy, holy place. That, that only the high priest and only after doing, only once a year, only doing specific things before he went in, he could do that. And this conquering uh, man just came in and he just walked in to kind of show the Jews, I can do what I want to do. We also can see that General Titus, when they 
take over in 70 AD, did this really sinful same thing, and Titus actually eventually becomes Caesar, an emperor of Rome. Caligula ordered a statue to be built. So some people say, well, it was him, even though that statue never did get built. But that's another option out there. The reformers, when we talk about the Antichrist and who it would be, they call it the Pope. They believe the Pope was the Antichrist uh, because he was doing things like burning them at the stake because they were, you know, not wanting to baptize infants anymore or things like that. That would come along as well. And we can also see that there are other passages in the Bible like 2 Thessalonians 2 or 1 John 4 that use language like a man of lawlessness is what 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about and 1 John 4 talks about. I know that's a ton of information, a bit of a history lesson, and way too much to probably really take in as you sit there. I share that all with you to say it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say this is a bit ambiguous. We want to be really careful when we try to figure this out, right? Your Facebook feed is going to tell you that the Antichrist is whoever political party runs in November in two years, right? Like that's who's going to be the new Antichrist. Because that's what we always say. It's, it's just whatever guy is next or Hitler was the Antichrist, right? Like that's what we do. And I think we're actually missing the point when we're trying to find him and figure out who he's supposed to be or not supposed to be or is he a person or whatever it is. Because the point, again, is what? It's to endure. It's to be on guard. And it's to not be led astray. And I think sometimes we might even be led astray because we take our eyes off of Jesus, the Christ, and we fix our eyes on some kind of false Christ and trying to guess who that is. And we're missing the whole point. And in some sense, I would say that it's E, all of the above, if I can add that in there. Because I would tend to lean in a direction that say that these things are repeating throughout history over and over again. And here's why I would say that. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter three, or verses 3 through 8, we read this. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. So see, it does seem that there's somebody that's going to sit in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So I think Paul is saying there, we, we don't know who this person is. And he's here now, he's saying in that day. But listen to verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He's already at work. That's what he is saying. I want to say to you, there is already a spirit of Antichrist about that has been working and continues to work, trying to deceive those who are willing to be deceived. 1 John 4 1 through 3 tells beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. He's saying he's already here. The spirit of Antichrist has already happened. The spirit of deception is happening now today. People are being led astray. Now here's what's super hard about that. 
that language doesn't work for a dinner party. Right? If I show up to the men's event on June 3rd and I ask Ben, hey man, is Jimmy coming tonight? He says, Jimmy's here, but on his way. I'm going to say, what? He's already on his way, but he is already here. Like, is Jimmy in the bathroom? Like, what are you trying to tell me? Right? Like, that doesn't make any sense when we just make it really, really material. But we have to understand that these things are spiritual, that Jesus is speaking about things, and he's trying to warn us about things, and and they are a bit beyond us. They're vague. They're a bit of an enigma. It's, It's hard to understand. I know that's hard. It's really hard for me, too. I, it, this is difficult. So the question is, is what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do when you can't just like have it lined out all perfect? And what I want to say is that needs to breed a dependence in your life. You need to say, I don't have this figured out. And I'm not going to waste my time trying to figure out something that God is telling me I can't figure out but rather I'm going to do what God has told me to do right now here and today. So I'm going to give you an easier passage to understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What is God telling us in Deuteronomy 29, 29? There are things he knows that you don't know particularly when it comes to the end. If it's anything like Jesus' first coming, the experts got it way wrong. They had all their theories of what the Messiah was going to look like, and none of them were right. Jesus came and said, no, 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 I'll fulfill this. I'll show you what it is. And so the reality is, is one day Jesus is going to come back, and every all millennials, pre-millennials, post-millennials is going to say, whoops, I got it wrong. That's what I think. I think there are parts of this story where we just have to say, nobody really has this figured out. It's the pride of man that wants to come in and say, I got this. And we have to say, no, 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 no. This is meant to breed a desperate longing and dependence upon the Lord. Because what Jesus is saying is things are going to get really hard. Like so hard, woe to you who are pregnant and nursing infants. We're living in that right now. You think women feel great about having babies right now with a formula shortage going on? They don't. These things are at work now, today, and they have been for a long, long time. And I think they're going to continue and continue until eventually, lo and behold, in a way we don't know, Jesus is going to split the sky and come reigning in the clouds, and he's going to rule and reign forever. And we will say, praise the Lord, Hosanna, he has come Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord, soon. That's the point of this passage. It's not to figure out everything that's going on. One helpful thing that I was told, I don't know if this is helpful to you or not, but it's like imagining a wheel on a line moving towards a future progression and that it is repeating itself over and over until eventually it culminates at the end. And I think that's a helpful word picture for me as I think through these things Because we know that things are hard. Things are hard today. But Jesus is promising that one day he's going to put an end to all of this. So we know that as that happens, that affliction can breed about discernment. So what are we to do while we wait in the midst of pain and difficulty? We can know that the tribulation and affliction we experience does produce something meaningful. Verses 19 through 23. 
For in those days there will be much tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So verse 19, we see that in those days there will be such a tribulation that has never been from the beginning of the creation until now and never will be. That something great seems to be coming. That it's something that will be terrifying. But God has not left us there. In verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. So it's talking about this extreme difficulty, this great tribulation. But it's saying if God had not cut the day short, nobody would be saved. But what happens? He does cut the day short. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he does shorten the days. What we want to see is that God is not leaving us alone. He'll cut short those days. He will not let things get so bad and extreme that nobody might be saved. But rather, he extends things. Or he, he cuts short the, the tribulation and we can see even passages like First Peter that he's patient so that all might repent and draw near. That's why he hasn't returned already. That's what Peter tells us. So that we might have time to repent and turn to Christ. These are extreme circumstances. They're extreme circumstances that make us incredibly vulnerable. The tribulation, trial, and the affliction of life. But for those who are God's elect, those who God loves and he has, whom he has chose, as our text says here, we say those who are Christians— who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and who died for sin and rose from the dead. Those who believe those things, God is promising to preserve those people even when they're most vulnerable, even at our worst, even in the tremendous times of tribulation and affliction of our lives, that he's going to cut those days short, that he's committing himself to us. I think when he says that, that if possible, it's not possible. Why? Why is it not possible for the elect to fall away? Because God acts. Not because of you, not because you're really strong and just muscle your way through it, but because God has acts. And he commits to you. And he's saying, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to keep you to myself. But yet there's this other side, so be on guard. Endure to the end so that you might be saved. And these are the things that we have to see. But I want us to see why is it that people reject God? in tribulation and affliction. Why do they fall away? And we can go back to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. I say this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. It'll be convincing. There are things that are like this now that are very, very convincing. So much that they even have false signs and wonders. Now, this isn't new. If we read our Bibles, we know that the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, were able to replicate some of Moses' signs and wonders. Not as great as God's, but they're still able to do some things. We see demonic forces at work all the time throughout the Bible that do, but seem to be amazing things. It says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. But listen, why they perish? Why do people not come to Jesus? It's not because of the false signs and wonders, as convincing as they might be. It's because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
What keeps people from Jesus? It's their affections, what they love, what they desire. And if they refuse to love the truth, that's what keeps them from Christ. And because they refuse to love the truth, it says, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The cause to deception is not, I'm just really smart and there's just no way God can do all these things and I can just kind of figure this out logically and I've got God cornered in the whole logic department. The XYZ explains this, therefore, you know why we're deceived? We're deceived and given over to a strong illusion because you love sin more than you love God. You love yourself more than you love the truth. The book of Romans tells us that the unbeliever suppresses the truth in their own unrighteousness. God has made us to know what is true. He's imprinted it on us as image bearers of God. And the non-believer suppresses that truth in their own sin and unrighteousness. What keeps us from Jesus isn't that we think Jesus isn't plausible. This other thing sounds more convincing. It's we love our sin and we hate the truth. That's what keeps us for Jesus. And because that's what we choose, because we choose to love those things more than Jesus, the Bible says, so God sends a strong delusion so they might be condemned. The reality is that these false Christs are coming and I believe are here and they are very, very convincing. They come with false signs and wonders. And we have to know that we must all be on guard. It's so easy to look at other people and think, wow, I can't believe they would fall for that. I could fall for that. You could fall for that. That's why Jesus is saying, be on guard. We have many spirits of the Antichrist that John would tell us, people who proclaim that Jesus is not the Lord among us today. Many throughout history that have come and have started entire movements. People like Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism or the Church of the Latter-day Saints. He believed that he received special revelation from God that was outside of the Bible, stuff that only he could know. It directly deposes the Trinity of God. He does not believe that God is three separate pers- that, that God is three in one, but rather would teach that God is three separate gods: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That they're not all one, but they're separate gods. That's a heresy. It's something that Christians cannot believe. Jehovah's Witnesses are a false religion that believes that Jesus is created and therefore He cannot be God. So Jesus is better than you, but less than God. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. And they do a lot of things with the Bible, and they tell you, ah, look at our translation of the Bible. They have their own translation of the Bible. It should be a red flag for all of us. Uh, you know, when you have like your own special translation of something, that yours is right and everybody else's is wrong. But that's what they would say, and they would point to those things, and they would say, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, therefore he is created. Rather than seeing that passage in Colossians to, to see what it actually teaches that Jesus is preeminent and above all creation and nothing is subordinate to Jesus because he is God and all things are made by him and for him and through him. The prophet Muhammad taught that Jesus was merely a prophet, a prophet that was subordinate to him, but a prophet. That he never really died, but he only appeared to die. And that his death 
was not for the atonement of sin, that God would never let one of his prophets go through something like that. And he knows this because the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him the Quran. And that Quran is meant to trump even the New Testament. So they can trust parts of the New Testament that line up with the Quran, but anything that doesn't line up, they don't trust or believe. Even though in the book of Galatians, we're warned that even if angels come to you, even if an angel comes to you and preaches you a gospel different than mine, he is cursed. Don't fall for it. Paul tells him that in Galatians. Paul is telling us in 2 Thessalonians, they're going to come with convincing signs and wonders. And yet a false religion has made its way all throughout the Middle East and still is the strongest, hold hand, strong, strongest holdout of Christianity that exists now today. This is what we see. Or we see things like a movement that came out of South Korea called the Missionary Society Church of God. They call themselves the Church of God, not to be confused with the Christian denomination, the Church of God. What a huge, uh, just like bummer for the Church of God. Like, <laughs> to accidentally get confused with a cult. A cult whose opening line is typically, have you ever heard of God the Mother? God the Father? Gotta have God the Mother. How else can you have Jesus. And that's the rationale. And they take a verse about Jerusalem being metaphorically called our mother out of context. And that's what a lot of these cults do. They take verses from here and there. They won't read a whole chapter with you at a time. They certainly won't read a book with you at a time. They won't do the kind of things that I'm trying to do with you. That's why we laboriously walk through books of the Bible. Why do we do that? Because you need to be on guard because you need to be ready. Because we say that and we point these out. Why did I put up, point out those particular four? Because there is a Mormon temple in walking distance from here. There is a World Society Mission Church of God, even though it came out of Korea, down the street from here, and it's huge. There's a Muslim mosque just on the other side of 270. And there are kingdom halls where Jehovah's Witnesses are all the time. Now, no way and no way do I mean to demonize any of these people? They are image bearers made in the image of God who are desperate for Jesus. They live in a world being told what they all have in common is you're not good enough. Don't come here on Sunday, you're gonna go to hell. That's what one of them says. Don't do these five pillars, you will never make it into paradise. And even if you do them, we don't know if you'll be good enough to make it into paradise. Not even Muhammad, we know for sure, was good enough to make it into paradise. Mormons say grace only kicks in when you've tried your hardest. So you better try your hardest. Because if you haven't tried your hardest, grace is still waiting for you. Jehovah's Witness would say only 144,000 make it in. So you better be really, really good. They all hold this thing in common that says you have to be good enough and try hard enough to be what you can be. And what does that appeal to? That appeals to humanity that doesn't want a dependence, that doesn't want to say adversity is what God uses for, for us. We would look at this and we say, Jesus, I don't want this. I don't want to deal with an abomination of desolation. No way. No, thank you. I want to be my own God like Mormonism teaches. I'm not trying to call out these things for the sake of trying to make them the enemy, but I'm trying to tell my congregation, because I love you, be on guard. You will interact with people like this, especially if you're serious about sharing your faith. I'm not telling you to argue with them. I'm not telling you to fight with them. I'm telling you to love them as Christ would have you love them. I'm telling you to be calm and controlled, but I am telling you they are deceived. So be on guard. 
These are sad things that are happening. They'll change their own doctrines just to keep their people around. They'll typically take significant advantage of people's wealth and money. They'll take horrible, horrible advantage of women and make them do things that are absolutely atrocious, particularly with a cult leader. And these things happen all over. And the moment we say, that won't happen to me or anybody I know, you're missing the point in Matthew 13. Jesus is saying, they are convincing. They are dangerous. So be on guard. We must be on guard. Because the spirit of Antichrist is at work in this world, even in less extreme ideologies. What about materialism? If you just think, ah, I could just have all the right stuff, then I'll be happy, and I'll be good. And that's what life is really all about. You Christians, you always want to spiritualize stuff. I just need to make rent. I just need to make life happen. It's all about that. An atheism that says we have it figured out, or materialistic worldview that says this is all, there's no creator, there's no one who, who, we're just all on our own, and you guys are just wasting your time making the world a worse place. Or even it's less about ideology or deep theology, and it's just, I'm just too busy to be a part of church. I got too much going on. Our church people are judgmental. I don't belong there. Don't let that hold you back. Even for pastors like me, I have to see that everyday selfishness, pride, worry, and fear is at work to try to come in and cultivate doubt in my life. And I have to ask the question over and over again, will I be on guard to the own susceptibilities of my heart and say, God, you are enough. Lord Jesus, you are enough. And every adversity and affliction and difficulty that comes my way, even when I don't know the future, and I don't know the future. But I know this, that Christ has given us enough to endure and be on guard. So what does that look like for you today as we wrap up today's message? Be on guard against false teachers. 